If you are a Christian, here's the good news. Uh, you not only have God with you, you have God in you. That's extraordinary news, and that's the news we'll speak about tonight as we continue our study in John, just one verse tonight, John chapter 7, verse 39, but it's loaded. John chapter 7, verse 39, it's about the Holy Spirit. Take a look. Here's how it begins. But this he spoke of the Spirit. It's odd, that verse, that phrase, but this he Jesus spoke of the Spirit. So what's happening here is someone is speaking about what the Lord had just spoken about. And the someone is John himself. John, the writer of this particular book in the Bible, the Gospel of John, or biography of the life of Christ, this John stepped up and is commenting on what the Lord had just spoken about in the previous verse, which we covered last week. And in that prior verse, verse 38, the Lord spoke this way. He said, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's an interesting phrase. It's a metaphor. It's, it's a little mysterious will flow rivers of living water. And John intervenes. He helps us, lest we be left to our speculations. And he speaks about what the Lord had just spoken about and says he means when he's speaking about rivers of living water, he's speaking about the Holy Spirit. I'm grateful uh, to John for giving us that interpretation. Otherwise, we, because we seem as humans to have this inclination, would go beyond what Scripture says and fill in perhaps all kinds of fanciful interpretations about what does this mean? Living waters uh, flowing within you, rivers of living water. People could come up with all kinds of things, write all kinds of fanciful books and uh, go on speaking tours and make movies and, and be amiss because they've gone beyond Scripture. We have a human tendency to do this. I think it's uh, unfortunate. In fact, I think it happens all the time. Just recently, in fact, I don't know if you're aware of it, but two days ago we had a solar eclipse. Do you know anything about this? Yes, yeah, so you heard about this? And uh, it was called the Great American Solar Eclipse because its effects were felt only here in America from coast to coast. And there was no lack of uh, all kinds of speculations about what it portends, what it what it means. I'm not suggesting they're all inaccurate, but many were quite speculative, quite imaginative. And uh, I was pleased to have received a number of inquiries from people here and in different places who made the mistake of asking me to comment on some of these theories, you know, and so, so I did. So, so just to give you an example of some of what was said about the solar uh, eclipse. One person wrote that the eclipse 
somehow its course made an X across the United States. Something like, is that how they did it? Something like that. I read that. And so then this person said, ah, there is a Hebrew letter. It's called Tav, T-A-V, and that's the shape of the Hebrew letter, Tav. It's like, it's like this, kind of like an X. And that Hebrew letter, Tav, is thought by some to stand for truth and is a symbol also of the word sign. So this was a sign across the, this atmospheric phenomenon was a sign of judgment from Almighty God. Now, I did not say God is not judging sinful United States of America. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that. But I find this to be rather fanciful, that you see the shape of the course of the eclipse and you find a Hebrew letter that has the same shape and rabbis over the years have read into it. This represents this and such and such. And now you got this whole theory. It's God is saying, here's my sign. See, that, that's what's called going beyond Scripture. That's called extra-biblical uh, interpretation and speculation. It's a free country. You're free to do that. But I wonder why, when you could spend your time focusing on the clear, plain meaning of Scripture, what is it with us? that we are unsatisfied, really, with what God has shown us and want to squeeze out of atmospheric conditions and all the rest more information than God has chosen to make clear to us. Listen to me. The last book of the Bible is called the Book of Revelation, but you should not think the other 65 are not books of Revelation. From Genesis 2, the last book of the Bible, God is saying, I choose to reveal truth to you. You don't have to guess at it, speculate, nor squeeze it out of me. I am not a God of secrets. I'm a God of revelation. I will show you everything you need to know. And we say, thank you, God, but that's not enough. I want to read some meanings into a Hebrew letter commensurate with this atmospheric phenomena and conclude things that are way, way beyond the testimony of Scripture, it seems to me. And what's more, someone said, the next solar eclipse is due in 2024. So if you do the math, this one, 2017, next one, 2024, that's seven years. Uh-oh. Seven years of great tribulation. I read a whole article on that. I believe in the great tribulation. I'm not going beyond Scripture to state that. I derive that notion from Scripture. However, the timing of it to precisely, dogmatically, and specifically associate it with what happened on August 21st, two days ago, to me is going beyond Scripture. It's selling books like crazy, as did the four blood moon phenomenon, as did all kinds of theories about Y2K. Remember that one? 
Uh, do you mind if I tell you, my fellow Christians, we're making ourselves look awfully foolish out there. Listen to me. If you're a true prophet, you've got to hit the target 100% of the time. And according to Old Testament scripture, if you miss it, we should stone you. So if you think you're a biblical prophet and you only hit 99%, which would be pretty good, stand up and let us throw rocks at you until you're dead. We're looking kind of goofy, it seems to me, when we go beyond scripture. Um, Someone said the temperature of the sun is 5,778 degrees. That's what they said. You can Google it, I suppose. Find out. 5,778. This year, 2017, in the Jewish calendar, is 5,777. Which means... Next year, 5,778, which is the number of degrees in the sun, we're going to burn like hell. (laughs) That's the theory that's advanced. Now, uh, could I tell you something? Could that happen? Yeah. In fact, these prognosticators, just by a statistical probability, are going to get it right sooner or later just by keep doing this stuff. But you see, to me is, when someone misses, I'm not buying their next book. They don't get chance number two. See, when I read the prophetic literature of the Bible, there are no misses, because it's inspired and inerrant scripture. You know what Paul said one time? He said to people, I'm a little concerned, lest your minds be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And we get involved in all these prognostications and reading into calendars and atmospheric events and all this stuff. We are getting led astray from the simplicity and purity of uh, devotion to Christ. The eclipse took place exactly 40 days prior to the Jewish holiday uh, known as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. In Jewish thinking, those 40 days are called the season of Teshuvah, or repentance. And the interpretation of the solar eclipse is God is giving America 40 days to get it together before it faces its demise on Yom Kippur. Now, uh, could that happen? In 40 days? Sure. We know uh, that the way things are is not going to be tolerated by a holy God indefinitely. We understand all this. But to do all these fanciful fanciful setting of dates uh, is very dangerous. That's to go beyond Scripture, it seems seems to me. And here is, can you help me figure this out? I, I couldn't figure it out, so I thought I'll just... I'll just state it. This is a direct quote from a person who is weighing in, weighed in on the solar eclipse. So here we go. Direct quote. There are many who currently believe the eclipse is intimately connected to an upcoming September 23rd astronomical alignment involving the constellations Virgo and Leo along with Mercury, Mars, Venus, and Jupiter. 
On that date, Jupiter will exit the lower part of Virgo, meaning, by the way, the virgin, in a way that would fulfill the man-child of Revelation 12, being birthed by the woman. Regulus and the other stars of Leo, along with the other three visible planets, comprise the crown of 12 stars that Revelation chapter 12 verse 1 says will be upon the travailing woman's head. You've got this epic solar eclipse over America and it's happening right at Regulus in Leo the lion, the constellation. There are 12 constellations. It could happen anywhere, but it's happening in the constellation of the king. With all of this coming together, it just doesn't seem totally off base that it could mean the return of the king. What the? Come on. <laughs> Come on, guys. And what's your heavenly father like? You got to squeeze all these esoteric meanings out of him. When he invites us to come sit at his feet and learn. When he's given us 66 books of inspired truth without error, preserved it, superintended it, brought it forth to this day. You can pour over John chapter 7, 39. <laughs> Instead of messing around with constellations, this, that, and the other thing coming. Come on, guys. Could I just warn you, don't be doing that. That's just a waste of time. That is a waste of time. It's harbingers. It's this. It's moons. It's all the rest. Come on, guys. We're going way beyond Scripture. Way be Are you so bored with what God has given us? Do you remember the book, The Bible Code? Came out years ago. And you, you have moved past it because now you have more discernment. But first you bought it, read it, were enamored by it, and told your friends about it. Then you find out uh, it didn't work out that way. So now you buy the next crazy sensationalist hidden secret book. What do you mean hidden secrets? God lays bare his redemptive plan to anyone who will sit at his feet. Come on. But I remember the Bible Codes book. It was authored by a Jewish mathematician, unsaved. And he looked at Hebrew letters each of which has also a number associated with it. So if you put Hebrew letters together to form a word and you add up its numerical equivalent, you could find some words have the same numerical equivalent as certain names. And you can find out the name of the Antichrist. You can find out the name of the next president or whatever. I shouldn't go there. That's too sensitive. Real mathematicians have determined you can do this with anything. You can get a telephone book or a dictionary, doggone it. <laughs> and you're going to get the same coincidence of names based on the numerical equivalent of 
Hebrew or Greek letters. And then I ask you this. How much do you know about the God who saved you? Do you think he would withhold his secrets and mysteries from you, his kid, only to reveal it to an unsaved Jewish mathematician? Come on. But I remember being here at the church when that book came out and many people came up to me, Stuart, have you read this? Have you read this? Can't believe it. It's like a hula hoop craze. What's the next nutso book that you are going to run to get? When we have God's word, we even have the gall to stand up when it's read and then sit down and read the Bible code book. Come on, guys. Uh, I've been a Christian since September 5th, 1973. I study the Bible probably 20 hours a week by God's grace. I'm, I'm pleased to do so. I am nowhere near scratching its surface. I'm not bored at all. I'm not ready to move on to somebody's fanciful notion of, of, of all this stuff. Why do you want to read books about God when you could read God's book? I don't get it. I don't get it. Now, look, I've gone a little, a little astray from the text. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. But it occurred to me when John intervened to interpret correctly what his Lord said in verse 38, he was saving us from foolish speculation of what rivers of living water could mean. He said, by this, he is speaking of his spirit. Okay, I'm, I'm back in the text. And thank you for letting me get this out because I was getting an ulcer. And now I've given it to you, so there. But this he spoke of his spirit, whom, that's a big word. If the Holy Spirit was a ghost, by the way, you got cute little kids, you're trying to raise them in a good way. You keep talking to them about the Holy Ghost, you're going to scare them half to death. That's a mistranslation of the word spirit. I mean, that Holy Ghost, I know you were raised that way and all the rest. Too bad. I was raised with traditions too. Get rid of them if they don't square with truth. If he's the Holy Ghost, if he's an it, an inanimate object, then we would think, John would say, but this he spoke of his spirit, that, not whom. But when he uses the word whom, he's speaking of a person, not an it, not may the force be with you. This is the third person of the Trinity. Three gods. Oh, come on. One who graciously chose to manifest himself in three fashions and forms for our benefit. So you have God the Father, and you have God the Son, and you have God the Spirit. He is not a lesser God. All three persons of the Trinity uh, possess in equal measure the fullness of deity. This is a person. When the Lord Jesus was speaking of rivers of living water, John said he's speaking of his spirit. If the spirit is a person, if the spirit is a divine person, <gasps> there is the possibility of God not only being Emmanuel, God with us, there is the real possibility of God being in us. That's huge. 
absolutely huge. But this he spoke of his spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And now we found out the one and only condition for having the very spirit of God, belief, acceptance, trust. There it is. Anything could have been said here. You know, do push-ups, give money to the poor, fast on the first, you know, whatever, Friday of every week, every month. The only condition for receiving the Spirit, as I'm reading this, if I'm reading it correctly, whom those who believed in him. It's not vague general belief. Whoever believes specifically in who Jesus is and what Jesus did, that one is to receive the very Spirit of God. You know, I read this and I think, boy, believing is in Jesus is a challenge, isn't it? And the reason why it's such a challenge is not because it's difficult. It's because it's easy. That's what makes the challenge. Because believing in Jesus requires nothing of us, we resist it. Because if it requires nothing of us, I can't brag about anything. I got nothing to boast about. I have nothing over you. I'd have to praise God. I'd have to boast about the cross. I'd have to give attention to the Savior. I don't want to. I want to call attention to me. So do you. It's human pride. So we're making something very easy, something very, very difficult because of human pride. The only condition required is to accept, believe, cling to what Jesus has already provided. And of course, that casts out human pride and boastfulness. We have to praise Jesus. And that's what makes believing in him, frankly, quite a challenge. And so the text goes on to say, and those who believed in him were to receive. So believing in Jesus leads to the receiving of great blessings and gifts. Don't you agree? I think it's tough to be alive. Life is tough. It's getting tougher it's for Christians and everybody else. But oh my goodness. When you count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. My goodness. You know, I think about, uh, I used to be separated, but now I'm reconciled. I used to be kind of an enemy of God, but now I'm a son. I used to have to guess at what God is like, but now... Uh, he indwells me and has opened up through his spirit in me his word. I used to really worry about the future, not having any idea what it holds, but now I know I'm going to either die first and go to be with Jesus or live on when he comes to get me. Those are two pretty good options for crying out loud. All kinds of blessings. I never knew really how to use my physical body with purity. I didn't know how to do that. Eyes, all the rest. I did not have, I don't know a thing about sexual purity. I didn't have a clue. I knew about if it feels good, do it. You know, you got the equipment, use it before it rusts. That's what I knew. Now I'm blessed to find out that my father has a better way. I'm not at the risk of sexually transmitted diseases. I don't have shame. 
Father knows. I didn't know about these things. You know, I didn't know a thing about money. Isn't that a, sh a shameful thing for a Jewish guy to admit? <laughs> I had no idea. I thought the idea is to earn money, to make money, to hoard money, to have money. But then my father told me, no, no, you don't get it. The real blessing is to give. Man, you've experienced that. These are the things. These are, I used to kind of not have a purpose in life. You know what I mean? Now, now I have a purpose. I'm a representative of Jesus Christ. So are you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So these are all the blessings. And the specific blessing spoken of in this particular text is God's spirit in us. And so the text says, but this he spoke of his spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So there was a time in history when this gift, this specific gift of God's spirit had to be waited for. Hmm. Why? The text here says, because the spirit was not yet given. Ah. Now, don't misunderstand this. It doesn't mean there was a time when the Spirit was not, but there was a time when the Spirit was not given in the same sense in which he came to be given in New Testament times until today. The Holy Spirit always was. We concluded he was God. One of the characteristics of God is pre-existence, no beginning nor end if the Holy Spirit is God, that means the Holy Spirit always was. And we know this when we read the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 2, where it talks about the Holy Spirit hovering over the, over the uh, waters. And then even in 2 Peter, Peter, uh, uh, speaking of the Old Testament prophets, says that they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, so don't misunderstand, the Holy Spirit always was, but he was not Look, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament days was upon certain people. But since the New Testament days, now the Holy Spirit is in people. Permanently to indwell them. That was not the case. That's why one of such esteem as David could cry out with heartfelt concern and pray to God, Oh God, take not thy spirit from me. I'll tell you something. That's a prayer you, if you're a Christian, will never have to utter. <laughs> because it's different now. The Holy Spirit, prior to a certain time, specifically Acts chapter 2, did not come to permanently indwell believers. He came upon them for temporary mission and ministry. But it's different. It's different now. On a certain day, recorded for us in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit came in an entirely new way. A marvelous, absolutely marvelous way. But here there was a time, John is writing, when the Holy Spirit, who he anticipated, had not yet come. And he tells us why. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Interesting. The Spirit of God had not yet come because Jesus, the Son of God, had not yet been glorified. What does that mean? Well, when Jesus was here, he told his disciples that he would be with them. But after his resurrection and ascension back to heaven, his Spirit came to be in them. First, what had to happen is his humiliation. 
Good night. He was born in a barn. He was raised in a dinky old podunk place called Nazareth. I know it's real famous, but in those days, it was just a dinky old place. No one went there. Can anyone significant come out of Nazareth? Yeah, the Savior did. Humble beginnings. He grew just like an ordinary Jewish kid. Then when he revealed his Messiahship, he was met with horrific rejection, even by his own family members. Ultimately, the leaders of his own people group, uh, the Jewish religious leaders, the rabbis, um, violated all dozens of their own laws of jurisprudence in order to convict him of crimes he did not commit and um, stripped him naked. He was stripped naked. He was publicly humiliated. He was beaten like crazy. He could have, if he wasn't as strong as he was, he could have died just from the lashes scraping across his back. They put a crown of thorns. I've seen the kinds of thorns that would have been used to fashion that crown. They're about an inch long. All kinds of capillaries over here. You bleed like crazy. He was bleeding here. He was bleeding here. He was naked. And then they pierced him through in a public area. Uh, uh, and people saw. And then, but then they scorned him. Ha! You call yourself Savior of the Jews. Save yourself. He, he didn't even have a place to be buried. They had to obtain that. That's the humiliation of Christ. You know why he did it? Because of us. That's why he did it. He did it because of us. He did it for us. But that's not the end of the story. The humiliation came first, but then the glorification. What's the glorification? Well, I'll just tell you. Up from the grave, he arose. That's the glorification. Empty tomb. That's the glorification. Ascension. Back to the right hand of the Father. That's the glorification. It is finished. That's the glorification of the Lord Jesus. And we're told in this one little verse, the Holy Spirit in that day when John wrote was anticipated but did not yet come in full measure because he had to wait for the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after he went through his humiliation and then ascended into heaven, then... He was a vindicated savior. Vindicated, I tell you. The world cast dispersions upon him. The Jews, the Gentiles, the Romans, everyone thought they were done with this Jesus, this pretender to the throne. But the resurrection vindicated him. He was glorified. Now he had authority to send the very spirit of God into people like us who confess Jesus as savior. If you possess the Holy Spirit, you discussed that earlier. If you have him in you, you have evidence of it. Could I tell you what else is happening? You not only have evidence of the Spirit of Christ in you, you are evidence that Christ is glorified. Because the Holy Spirit could not come, could not be sent until that happened. The Lord Jesus is no longer here. If you have his Spirit in you, And there's no question, you either do or you don't. If you have his spirit in you, (laughs) you have evidence of the fact that the once present, now absent Lord Jesus is absent because he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. 
where he sat down and said it is finished. His work of rescue and redemption is absolutely finished. And so the people in John's day had to wait for him to be glorified. No such time gap for me. I want to tell you this. You accept Jesus as Savior and boom! In an instant, his spirit possesses you. There's no time gap. There's no time gap anymore. So the coming of of the Spirit of God that John spoke about happened in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Now this whole context, you recall, is a Jewish holiday called the Feast of Tabernacles. We spoke about that. Sukkot. And interestingly, the Holy Spirit came in full measure on another feast of Israel, spoken of in Acts chapter 2. That's, you may know it as Pentecost. That's Shavuot. Shavuot. Now here, I'm not speculating, am I? I'm just telling you what the scripture says. We happen to know Feast of Tabernacles is the context because that's what we read uh, a few weeks ago here in John 7. We happen to know what happened in Acts chapter 2 took place on Pentecost because that's what it says. I'm not reading things into scripture. I'm telling you what the scripture says. So on Shavuot, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came. And that's why Peter said this. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. The Holy Spirit came in a magnificent, dramatic, there was no mistaking. There were signs about it. People heard each other, Jews from all over, speaking each other language. There were tongues as of fire. I'm telling you, this was the initiation, the inauguration of an entirely new day or dispensation. The coming of God's Spirit to indwell believers permanently. It had to come after the Lord's humiliation, then his glorification. Now he was the vindicated Savior and he could send the paraclete, the helper, into us. That happened on Shavuot, according to Acts chapter, according to Acts chapter 2. Folks, I got to tell you, it's really, really wonderful, if you're a Christian, that God is with us. But it is almost incomprehensibly wonderful to know that God is not only with us, God is in us. Now, I don't need more of the Holy Spirit. I have him in full measure. He's a person, but I sure need less of me. I'm getting in his way, so do you. That's called flesh versus spirit. I have the fullness of deity dwelling in me. The fruit thereof is love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, self-control. All these things. And if I'm not experiencing those things in full measure, it's because I'm doing something the Bible refers to as quenching the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Just as oil and water can't mix, the Holy Spirit can't mix with unholiness. We call him the Ruach ha Kodesh, the spirit, which one? The holy one. He's taken up his abode in our life, and so we're called the temple of the very spirit of God. Just as defiled people couldn't enter into that physical temple 2,000 years ago, 
Holiness and unholiness doesn't mix. That's why the most miserable person on earth is not an unsaved person. Are you kidding me? They're having a party. Many, many. Not, not all. But I mean, because they're sinning and it doesn't bother them at all for crying out. They get away with it. It's not fair. But the most miserable one is a Christian who knows better. Is a saved one who's still engaging in patterns of sinful behavior. What causes the misery? We quench the Holy Spirit in us. And you know what he does? Because he's so loving. He will mess us up. You ever pray that for someone you care for? A Christian friend who's drifting from God? You ever say, oh God, in the power of your Holy Spirit, mess that person up. (laughs) Show them, show them how impoverished the ways of the world are. Oh God. Show them how hurtful and empty life is lived according to the flesh. Oh, God, convict them, disturb them, grant them repentance. You ever pray things like, that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It's incomprehensibly wonderful that, the, that God is not only with us, but in us. And I shared this with you, but I'll do it again. Um, when I was a brand new Christian, a million years ago, I was in the military, we were playing basketball, I think I told you this, in an airplane hangar, it was, it was a bomber factory is what it was, and they converted it and made it a gym, so we were playing there, and so basketball was like an uh, important thing to me, so I used the Lord's name in vain in the course of a game. I felt like there was some crazed Baptist preacher there screaming at me not to do that. It was just that real. There was nobody. It was just me and a bunch of smelly, perspiring guys. There was no, I'm telling you folks, it was as strong as if it was an audible voice saying, Stuart, don't do that. I'm holy. Don't use my name in vain. I did it again. Not on purpose. It's just that old habits die hard. I did it. Same. I was, I was being mad. I didn't know what was going on. I was just evidence of the Holy Spirit in me. Not letting me get away with the things I used to get away with and which were not good. Now, as an act of love, the Holy Spirit was putting the reins on my behavior and messing me up when I crossed the line. And you have that happen two, three times and you stop doing it. So that's an evidence of the, so folks, to have God with us, Emmanuel is amazing, but to have God in us is inexpressible, inexpressible. You know what this means? I don't have to go to the temple. I is the temple. See the difference? Old Testament, New Testament. See the the difference? Uh, Folks, we were designed to have God in us. We were. We were designed for God. I know this just by looking to the equipment with which we have been fashioned. For instance, we all have a mind. What's it for? It's to think about God. We all have a heart. I don't mean this. Emotions. What are they for? It is to love God. We all have a will. What is our will for? To obey God. 
That's the equipment God gave us. He didn't give that to any other created thing. So when I look to the equipment with which we have been equipped, that tells me what we're designed for. We're designed for communion with God. But something happened. The first of us, Adam and Eve, that was their name. They really messed up. God told them one thing, don't do it. And under the best of circumstances, they revealed their true human nature, and they done did it. And it affected a separation between them and God. And that's it. It's been passed on from our forebears down to this very day. We all bear the same nature of Adam and Eve's sin and the same consequence of sin, separation from Almighty God. And God could have closed the chapter on the human race. But he did not. Instead of bad news, he sent good news. And here's the good news. I will send my son to be humiliated for you and because of you. And he will bridge the gap between you and me. The gap you caused because of your sin, I'll send him to bear the penalty of your sin for you. Can I tell you what I learned from the solar eclipse? I was reminded of two things about God. One, he's great. Two, he's good. You look at this phenomenon, and my father simply pulled that off like that. I don't think he exerted that much energy. The grandeur and greatness of God was on display. And the second thing, Big and great as he is, he reduced himself out of his goodness to become an enfleshed Jew, <laughs> to be spat upon, persecuted, pierced through, laid in a borrowed tomb. The greatness of God and the goodness of God. I got that from the solar eclipse. If you want to read more into it, have at it. But those two G words are enough to keep me going. The greatness of God and the goodness of God. Here's the goodness of God. I will not start again. I will redeem those whom I started with, you. And so he sent the Redeemer to make us new creatures in Christ Jesus. And to change us from the inside out by making a deposit, which is a gift beyond words. I will establish my presence in the form of my spirit, Holy Spirit, in you. And you will be changed from the inside out to such extent that one day I will present you before me holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You're not there. I'm not there. But we're getting closer because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us, not our work. And the Bible says, he who began a good work in you will finish it. Now, if you want to read all kinds of goofball stuff about Hebrew letters and numbers and X's across the sky, have at it. I want to chew on Feast on John chapter 7, verse 39, and find out, ah, oh, the rivers of living water as the very Spirit of God, and I qualify for him for two reasons. Jesus was glorified first, thus vindicated 
and with authority can send him. Two, I satisfy the condition to have the Spirit of God in me. I believe. I accepted the finished work of Jesus. That's it. You know, you get to the point where nothing else matters. Not the environment, not the economy, not all the crazy stuff going on. It's not just that God is with us. That would be enough. God in us. The hope of glory. Jesus in the prior verses said, are you thirsty? Because he knew that life makes you thirsty. Life makes you thirsty. Makes your soul thirst. Something's wrong. Life Life, if you live it long enough, you, you're parched, your soul. Jesus said, do you thirst? Come to me. Now I'll, I'll give you drink to satisfy your soul. God's spirit is meant to be the presence of God to satisfy our thirsty, parched soul. Do you have the spirit of God to go with you when we take leave of one another tonight? You could. Could you stand to your feet and let me pray? And let me ask God to move in you who haven't yet come to Jesus for a drink. Maybe you can utter some words to that effect before you leave tonight and say, I've come rather empty. I want to go filled. I've come rather thirsty. I want to go satisfied. So we bow before you, Lord Jesus because you're high now and lifted up. You're exalted now, no longer to be humiliated. You're glorified, and we're grateful. Thank you for continuing to help us, and thank you for sending the helper, that is to say, your spirit, to be in us. And I pray that those here who stand even tonight in need of the help of your very spirit, would come to you and say, Lord Jesus, I thirst. My sin has not satisfied. It's caused a hunger and a thirst for right relationship with you because I'm made for it. Lord Jesus, thank you for making it possible for me no longer to be separated, but to be reconciled, to have communion with you, the communion with which you have designed me. So come into my life, Lord Jesus, you who suffered and died in my place and now are high and lifted up. Change me from the inside out through the presence of your very spirit, Holy Spirit in me. And let me be one in whom flow not only rivers of living water on the inside, but through me to others as well. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.